Welcome to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Today, I have Hiramasa Takamura, the 2022 OHBM Early Career Investigator Award winner. He's the 26th recipient of this prestigious award joining a group of investigators who made an impact earlier in their career and have continued to do so. Dr. Takamira is a professor in the Division of Sensory and Cognitive Brain Mapping in the Department of System Neuroscience and also professor of, uh, at the International Research Collaboration Center at the National Institutes of Natural Sciences and the National Institute for Physiological Sciences in Okazaki, Japan. Uh, in 2015, he was the senior researcher, and he still is actually, we must have a joint appointment, a senior researcher at the Center for Information and Neural Networks called SINET, an advanced ICT research institute, the National Institute of Information and Communications Technology, which is in Osaka. So in 2007, he received his bachelor's in liberal arts at the University of Tokyo. 2009, he received his master's in multidisciplinary studies, also at the University of Tokyo. And finally, in 2012, he received his PhD in the Department of Life Sciences at the University of Tokyo with, under his advisor, Akuya Murakami. And from 2012 to 2015, he went to Stanford working with Brian Waddell. And his work has impacted the field mostly because it's traversed between track tracing and basic systems neuroscience, sort of combining those two fields. So his impact has been great. He has a lot of interesting things to say about his research on tractography and about where the field's going. So with that, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome, Hiramasa Takamura, and congratulations. You're actually the the 26th awardee joining such names as, for instance, more recently, Danny Bassett and Chao Ganyan and, uh, and Daniel Margulis, Lucina Uden, Uden, Mike Millam, uh, and so on, and all the way down to Carl Friston, who was the first back in 1996. So how did you feel? Uh, and when did you find out? In what context uh, did somebody call you up or did they email you or, or how did that work out? Well... So when we are just applying, my faculty mentor to Okazaki just gave me very generous just recommendation. I don't just nominate myself. So I actually don't really expect to receive this award. I'm very amazed. So I was very <laughs> impressed. So I greatly appreciate Of course, I sometimes have a complex feeling because there are so many other people who are doing a great job. So they're just definitely just entitled to get the credit. So sometimes I feel... Is that really okay? So, but yes, but I really just general, very much appreciate this opportunity. I mean, it's extremely well-deserved. I think that uh, from what I understand how they, you know, judge the candidates, it's, it's not only a number of papers, but it's the impact and it's the, you know, the direction you're forging. And so I think that I think, for, at least from my opinion, the, the work on advancing track tracing and, and really combining that with, with really sophisticated neuroscience is is truly a service to the field of neuroscience, but also helping MRI as far as you know being truly applicable to something neuroscience based and, and lending insight. So so let's just back up to your early years. Uh, I noticed uh, looking at your uh, your history is that uh, you went to uh, liberal arts uh, at the University of uh, you went to the University of Tokyo and took and had a bachelor's in liberal arts and then. You had something, uh, you got a master's in interdisciplinary studies, which I'm not sure exactly what that is, but it seems like you've had a, a sort of broad background. To, what exactly is multidisciplinary studies? Multidisciplinary well, studies. yes, it's kind of complicated because University of Tokyo cover kind of different sectors. And I think that one of the campus is historically called kind of general uh, science and arts college, so which covers just every field. Then I think there are kind of a lot of teaching for undergraduates. Then I think multidisciplinary means I think that is a kind of section actually covering every field. <laughs> but 
for the master student, I think everybody kind of assigned to a single row to do the master's thesis. In fact, I did visual psychophysics <laughs> in that period. And I continued that until PhD with the same advisors. All right. And then, right, you, you got your PhD at, also at the University of Tokyo in the yeah. Department of Life Sciences with uh, Ikuya Murakami? Correct. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, then, and then you went on to, at, to Stanford and worked with yes. Brian Wendell. So, yeah. so what was the influence of, of those investigators? Uh, well, they're kind of complementary because in my PhD, I think there are kind of strong emphasis on psychophysics. So there are some po- certain positive aspects to learn how to just design visual stimuli. And also studying about basic vision is helpful for to get some practical insight about signal processing because vision, just especially early vision, is a kind of mixture of the lot of signal processing because we have to understand how just a different frequency just affect the visual responses, and which is actually also important to understand neuroimaging as well. <laughs> because yeah. the basic principle for the signal processing, there are kind of many things in common. So even for our visual psychophysics, doesn't always directly related to my current research. I think that doing lots of psychophysics just give me a lots of practical just skills uh, yes. to understand how signal processing work, how to design kind of stimuli will be helpful to also understand neuroimaging. So. Yeah, I've always found that the the vision neuroscientists that I've worked with um, have always been extremely well trained in you know everything because right they're they're designing these these psychophysical experiments and and they usually have a, a a a deeper sense of processing that lends itself to fMRI processing or MRI processing in general so they can just grasp right onto those methods and it seems like you've you've done the same and it's certainly getting extremely well grounded in, in vision neuroscientists. I've, so I've worked with vision scientists, uh, most of my career, uh, uh, you know, early on, it was Ted Dio at the medical college, of Wisconsin and at MGH, uh, there are a number of, of vision scientists, but also Leslie Engelator. And so yeah. she just, she passed away a few, uh, two years ago and we just had a symposium and I was, as I listened to the symposium, I actually was thinking about this podcast thinking, Oh my gosh, you know, all, all of these methods, you know, there's all these other methods that people painstakingly uh, were drawing connections between, um, you know, specific visual reasons, regions in the macaque uh, and other other primates. And yeah, and then it seems that when MRI came along, that was for a number of reasons. It was a huge breakthrough in some areas. So I don't know what your perspective of the history is, but... Uh, so when when did like track tracing first have like an impact on vision neuroscience? You know, there's certainly they made these beautiful images, but yeah. did it really have an impact? Did it complement or add to the knowledge that they had? Well, depends on the research question. But when I just started with Stanford at the 2012, then I think Brian Wandel just suggested me to diffusion imaging. Then when I just told that I'm just studying diffusion image to my former colleagues that are doing vision science, then people just found that I became crazy. So <laughs> I'm kind of almost joking. <laughs> but at that period, there's kind of no recognition that such methods can be useful for think something about visual system <laughs> by many reasons. But of course, there are kind of sense that people don't fully understand method or methods are transversely, but also, there is also kind of lack of recognition, like why matter bundle can be potentially interesting to think about the organization of the visual system because people just don't pay lots of attention. But yes. dif- different people have a very different history because language people fairly focus on the why matter for a long time because the long history of the why matter region, uh, maybe connection between Wernicke and Broca's area, but maybe why matter can be relatively neglected in the field of vision. <laughs> by some yeah. reason, which is historically very interesting, but I think it seems definitely less appreciated until some point. Yeah, and I think that, you know, in the, in the field of track tracing, I think that, you know, there's there's a lot that intuitively is immediately graspable. I mean, you, you look at these fiber tracks and they connect the obvious areas and uh, and you imagine that the, the biggest tracks, you know, are proportional to the strongest connections, uh, you know, corpus callosum. Uh, shows the strong, and there's the most activity in some sense, but 
Can you say anything about the strength of the connection? Is there any, is there any more quantitative information about the degree of mm. connection? Yeah, that's a complex question because when we are just talking about strength of connection, then that's already a complicated concept, in yes. my opinion. And I often just talk with this about other neurophysiologists or neuroanatomists and other because concept of connection strength itself is already complicated. Yes. Because what, what is it? Then nobody knows. What is strong connection? What is weak connection? Which is just very unclear. Because the idea to claim that strong connection and weaker connection have a philosophy like the one can summarize some property of the anatomical connection to the single number summary. This is yes. strong, this is just weak, then that kind of single number summary, but which is surprisingly imprecise in my opinion. Yes. <laughs> because yes. is that about a number of axons or level myelination or what is it? Or should we also account for something of physiology like synaptic weight or a couple of other factors? Yes. Then that, sometimes I recall some debut paper by Catherine Lockland at Boston. So she is a tracer neuroanatomist. She also talked about this topic. So can we really just account for this conception of connectivity strengths? If we are just counting a number of axons, is that a useful proxy for say something about strength of connection, which is not very clear. Yeah. And yeah. even what is what is functionally what what would strength of connection necessarily mean? Um, yeah, yeah. Right. So so right now we're sort of I mean it's intuitive that you you think, okay, well, areas that are strongly connected probably work in concert most of the time. And, and if they're connected by white matter tracks, they're evolutionary setup that you don't really want that to change. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of like a, you know, a hardwired connection in some sense. Um, but that's the question that, that sometimes people bring to me when we compare functional connectivity with track tracing, they say, well, there's all these other areas that look like they're, you know, co-fluctuating, yeah. um, but they're not necessarily connected by fiber tracks. And then so, right. and if that's the case, you know, everything's kind of could be connected to everything else in a polysynaptic yeah. sort of way. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you interpret that then? So. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and, and it's interesting because, right, there is some, does seem like there be, be this tension between things that are hardwired, things that need to be connected, and and things that could be connected as you're adapting to your environment in some sense with polysynaptic connections. Okay. Well, and so... So what does, so this is actually, I know MRI. So when I, when I was starting at the NIH, it was actually, so you, so you were, you were at with, with Wendell at, in about 2012 to yes. And so when I was starting at the NIH, even before that, uh, Logothetis and others were, were pushing this technique using manganese. Right, uh, right. Contrast. And that's sort of more like the classical dyes that have been used. Like, you know, where you look at antrograde or retrograde sort of connections how does how is diffusion how, what made it more embraced than uh, and, and, and so just to go back to the question of how it made an impact on, on vision neuroscientists i know a lot of vision neuroscientists are now gravitating towards using track tracing but what's missing in in, in terms of what track tracing can do well I think that over the last kind of decades i kind of found that existing diagram of the visual neuroscience seems surprisingly biased in some sense. Because you talk about Leslie Angarida, I just admire her work a lot. But nobody explicitly says that, maybe including her, like maybe Dosa and the Ventura split it. I think nobody claimed, but when we are just looking at textbook cartoon, like maybe a singular coming from Regina go to LGNs and B1, then one way to Dosa, other ways is Ventura, that's it. So that seems overly simplistic. Then, yes. which is also very unlikely in a sense to understand some biological vision, which requires lots of interaction between different systems. But I think without thinking about some level of the anatomy, I think people can just easily get lost in order to think about what's the right architecture to think about computational processing of the vision. Then sometimes it's very typical that people claim that the visual model is like B1, B2, B4, IT cortex, or feed forward. 
which is nowadays very popular type of model, but which is also very unlikely in many sense, <laughs> because there are other areas that find of interaction with other areas. So then in, to some extent, the knowledge of the connection anatomy is helpful to adjust some biological plausibility of the model. So how they are interacted, how they are connected. Of course, anatomy doesn't alone uh, provide all information to understand the architecture. But at least I think people just entirely ignore connection anatomy. I think the architecture of the visual processing can be easily very biased. Uh, in a way, it makes some biological implausible form. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's kind of one idea. So I think it's not very sophisticated at this point, but this is what I'm uh, thinking. So. Yeah, and I'm sure that you and, and others are, are imagining right. I mean, we have terms to describe how the brain works. I mean, we have connectivity, we have a certain hierarchy, we have feed forward feedback and, you know, projections to certain specific areas. But, you know, you could almost imagine at some point that terminology begins to break down. I remember in my, I was interviewing Danny Bassett early on and, and, uh, you know, I thought, well, you know, the way she describes connectivity is, is that, uh, you know, you could almost describe everything, uh, you know, all, all dynamical systems as, as can, being, you know, having nodes that are connected. But in some sense, then she said, well, you know, actually, you know, there's fluid dynamics. And, and then I imagined, I, you know, I started to think, well, maybe, you know, in some sense, you know, the brain is kind of starts to approximate more of a fluid where you have neurons that fire and sort of propagate, you know, all kinds of connections. And it sort of almost starts to approximate sort of like a, you know, these wave functions that kind of, you know, so, it, you know, but, you still, we have to have tools to think about this. And we have to, you know, we use our imaging tools, we use our, you know, mathematical tools. And so and I think that's part of the challenge, but I mean, I think that, right, certainly tractography helps constrain those parts of the brain that definitely are hardwired. And um, yes, and also maybe the huge MRI, even for it's limited, sometimes it's quite useful to think about some impact or why matter region. Because region can also happen in the why matter. Then which just when damaging our function, then in order to think about the consequence, I think the understanding at the level of the why matter track have a clinical relevance. Even if it doesn't just pick out even single neuron uh, axons, but region happen at kind of mesoscopic scale or macroscopic scale. Then what it means, what it happened. Then I think some level of the understanding at the macro scale is also important. Even if it's not the perfect model at the level of a micrometer, but it's still useful. So, but, well, it's kind of similar argument between single unit electrophysiology versus fMRI. Yes. To some extent, because even if it's kind of macro or mesoscale measurement, there are certain things you can just establish a model, certain things you can learn about it, which doesn't mean it provides all information you need, but I think it's still there are kind of useful information you can get. So. I'm just going to take a balance between some positive and negative. <laughs> there are certainly we cannot do with the huge MRI. Yes, I entirely agree, but there are certain things we can learn from it, so we can just use it. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And I think yeah. that, uh, yeah, people are sometimes too either too quick to embrace something or too quick to dismiss it. And I think that those, those who go in for the long game and sort of really work with it like you're doing, uh, they learned how to sort of work with it and extract more and more information and tie it into these models of, of you know, how the brain's organized, how it changes with development, how it changes with learning, how it changes with pathology. And, and, and the answer is probably right. There's relevant organization across all the different scales. Uh, this is the scale that we happen to see and uh, we were working with, and we see interesting signatures, which I'll get into uh, in a little bit about uh, some of the clinical applications um, and some of your recent work too on, on on looking at white matter pathway changes and things like that. But but just to back up just for a second, when we talk about track chasing, uh, just to, to clarify, I mean, there's different inf types of information you can get with MRI and also with diffusion. And what would be the, the typical parameters that you would use with with uh, to do track tracing, at least? Um, well, everybody has very different opinions. So <laughs> that's complicated to some extent. And also, 
the that type of question depends on so many factors. How much scan time you have, for example. So what's the target? Is that about kids, uh, older elderly population, or clinical patient, or healthy young adults, or even ex vivo, just brain specimen? Then I think the potential just scan time is very different. Then I think choice of the scanning parameter is a combination of the trade-off between number of the direction, the number of B value, number of the repetition, and the amount of the scan time you have. <laughs> then everybody have a different opinion, right? Some people say you must just acquire more than this direction, or you might just acquire more than 3B value or something, but it is a complex optimization problem. There is no absolute answer. Yeah, and it seems that the, right, and obviously beyond the acquisition, the, the processing methods uh, certainly make a difference too. And, and so that's part of the art of it to sort of, you know, right, on, on a normal subject, you, you, you I mean, typically, I, I'm guessing you, you need a, a, you know, something, a, a B factor in the range of a thousand. And, and yeah, and it, and it certainly takes, an, a, you know, a typical, you know, maybe 30 minutes at least uh, of acquisition to, and obviously your spatial resolution, I mean, you have your angular resolution, uh, you know, how many directions you want to collect to, to actually help resolve the kissing and crossing fibers to some degree. And also you need resolu spatial resolution too. Um, yeah, um, well, people have different goals because people don't want to spend a lot of scan time for the huge MRI. We want to do fMRI, but we also need the huge MRI data, but we are just okay to just focus on major band and FA. Then in those cases, sometimes shorter acquisition can be potentially okay. Because you couldn't resolve all crossing fiber, you couldn't always use sophisticated model, but they're just only focusing on the tract, you know. <laughs> then they're only interested in the FA, then sometimes shorter acquisition can be acceptable. But maybe some diffusion people may say that's not enough or acceptable, but I think that's kind of argument just never end to some extent. So I don't want to make right. too much opinion. <laughs> Yeah. And on top of that, I mean, at some point, right, you're just, you know, it seems that you would have to have incredible resolution to really answer that definitively, which is beyond, you know, an order of magnitude beyond what we can do anyway. So um, you get to a point where it becomes, you have only so much signal to noise to work with in time. So along those lines, uh, just briefly, uh, you know, we, we were talking a little bit before this about field strength and, you know, we have two uh seven teslas at the you know three te seven teslas at the nih and and i and i i do i this is what i tell people is that you know definitely it's good for fmri it's, def it's definitely good for susceptibility contrast uh structural imaging is amazing but diffusion it's it may not be great but it could be great um you know and and so what are your thoughts on that well so, my personal opinion is the huge imaging 70 seems very challenging because there are lots of background on this, but T2 relaxation goes faster than that are very much challenges for inserting motion probing gradient. So there are theoretical challenging and practical limitation. But to some extent, that's up to the research goal because if the goal is ML science, potentially 70 diffusion can be interesting because you want to make a 70 uh, system more balanced accessible to everybody, including a clinic. Then in those situations, acquisition diffusion is kind of necessary. Then 70 diffusion can be interesting topic. But for neuroscientists at this point, I think it's not very convincing that 70 can be potentially useful neuroscience because if after just lots of work, you can get some data, you can just use it, but maybe you can also use it. Uh, 3T scanner with strong gradient. So then how much neuroscientists want to spend time? Then it really depends on research discipline. Yeah, and it should be noted the the scanner at MGH. I mean, certainly the the, the connectome scanner with the huge gradients is a is a three Tesla, uh, and certainly there are they are combining the higher gradients with higher field strengths for you know either echoplanar imaging or, but definitely I mean just to be clear, right at seven Tesla the T twos get shorter, uh, susceptibility dropout gets shorter get smaller. And so, but certainly signal noise goes up. There might be more eddy currents with, uh, you know, adding diffusion weighting at 70, you have more of an interaction with the field. But th that said, uh, I've seen some spectacular images at 70. And so, yeah, I think, 
like you, exactly like you said, it depends on you know, what constraints you want to live with and what parameters you're, you're, you're trying to optimize where 17 could be just wonderful. And in fact, you know, I've seen, I've seen work and this is what I'm going to ask you about as well. You know, I mentioned manganese, but some people suggest that, you know, somehow using susceptibility contrast might help, you know, that seems like there's uh, tensors and, and they, you might be able to do track tracing with that to combine this with track tracing to somehow complement that information as well. So, but yeah, so it's, so either way, so that's, that's great. But you have a 7T yes. uh, where you are and, and I was going to ask you, maybe I'll jump ahead briefly and then, then backtrack a little bit. And, and that is, so a lot of what we're doing with 7T is, is layer fMRI, which seems like it could lend itself to track tracing as well. I mean, you have, you know, you're looking at maybe cortical, uh, you know, either U fibers or connecting fibers, potentially seeing where they terminate, you know, within the cortical column. Is Do you see any hope for doing layer fMRI, especially looking at hierarchy and you know, connectivity? Well, I just started from the last year. <laughs> uh, then my lab is very new. So we haven't really started that type of uh, project at this point. Maybe we are just beginning of the 70, then we are just going to stand relatively coarser resolution, then in order to get a sense how much we can do. Then I think the layer FMI itself is not the, uh, the first project I want to do in the, my lab. Of course, I'm kind of interested. I know that a lot of data development is going on, but at this point, I'm not going to try by myself, but I'm just still keep using FMRI for different purposes because 70 is sometimes very spectacular to looking at subcortical nuclei, for example, which is right. sometimes challenging to image in the 3D setup, but we can see it clearly in the structure image, and I think the function contrast gets better. So there are certainly strong benefits of the 7T. Then maybe layer kind of business is one of the examples 7T can be useful, but maybe that's not the only way we can use 7T effectively. Yeah, you bring up a really good point. Um, you know, the, looking at the subcortical structures is is seems much better at 7T, especially because of the susceptibility contrast. And then it seems that you could actually then combine that with DTI that's collected at 7T, since you almost have to collect it on the same scanner at the same time because there's distortions and things like that, that you, you match those, especially. And then you can start to see fiber track connections from well-identified nuclei and subcortex. Uh, which is a wide open area. And I think there's all kinds of potential biomarkers of psychiatric and neurologic disorders in that area. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, at the same time, I have a hope that maybe we want to better understand anatomy in many ways. We go, in order to rightly interpret fiber tracts, so we need more information because nobody just question connection between LG and B1. Then everybody just use tractography to identify optic radiation. There's no question about it, in my opinion. Yes. But even for those established pathway, I couldn't find out some clear uh, information about how just feed forward and feedback axons are spatially arranged inside the bundle, for example. <laughs> then if we know about it, that's very useful. Because we are also collaborating medical doctor to study about eye disorder. Then in yeah. those cases, I think the impact of the disorder is going from ceramic nuclear to cortex potentially. <laughs> then if people have a region in the cortex, then we should see some generation going the opposite ways. Okay. But at this point, we don't have a very strong clue about how to just interpret just a voxel inside the same bundle because there's no prior information about how they are spatially arranged inside it. So then diffusion MRI can be a wonderful technique to see something at fiber tract scale. Yeah, yeah. But without additional information, it's more difficult to interpret in relation to physiology, maybe laminar profile, feed forward, feedback, which requires some additional anatomical investigations. Yeah, it seems like there's there's only a few groups trying to bring all that together, like quantitative MRI, cytoarchitecture, um, and even looking at like myelography. And it seems that track tracing, and, and as I've read your papers, it, it occurs to me that, you know, it's very similar in many ways to myelography. I mean, you're looking at 
diffusion along white matter. And, but, you know, there's been methods of looking at myelin, at least myelin water with you know, the ratio of T1 to T2, for instance. Is there any, uh, I mean, and certainly there's, there's overlap. Is there, yeah, I mean, it's certainly there's, there's myelin in other areas that are more anisotropic. So, I mean, have you been trying, have you ever, I mean, what would be the advantage of combining, like, for instance, myelography with tractors? Yes. So one of my former colleague, his name is Abib Mezer, with his student, Loisher, developed a kind of method called maybe quantitative T1-based tractography filtering, So, which is already published in Neuroimage a few years before. The idea is very simplistic. Before, if we are looking at optical radiation, we empirically know it's more marinated. Then if we are just getting some good quantitative contrast, then you can also see in the susceptibility image, you can just see some optical radiation in the medial uh, get higher, just mining contrast. And they have an idea to use those uh, images as a proxy of the trajectory of the optical radiation, then guiding tractography uh, to go along that way in order to just restrict tractography to get the right pathway. Oh, that's then, interesting. Yes, that is already there, then published, and we can just already potentially use it. And then that's an idea. But that requires some prior knowledge that one pathway should be more marinated than the others uh, in order to restrict tractography more. But some people just call it some microstructure informed tractography. Like you, you need some microstructure information from other MR contrasts then inform those information to tractography uh, to uh, additional constraint tractography. That's a one idea to use it. But uh, other idea is to better understand some microstructure in the fly matter. Because sometimes we are looking at the patient data because one MR parameter we see abnormalities, the other parameter we don't. Those things often happen. Then, which is likely the different just parameter like FA, say T1, or maybe MT, other. So they have very different sensitivity for different type of pathological changes. But which is also long debate because it's a kind of inherent kind of uh, ambiguity between one MR parameter related to what. Then there's a kind of never ending debate in the field. But I believe that there's at least a relative relationship. This is more mining weighted, then this is more weighted to this factor. Then if we know about those relations properly, maybe having multi-contrast uh, will be helpful to interpret what just going inside there. Say, is a person have a glaucoma, what's happening in the fly matter, so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, what you're saying is something, you know, along the lines of, right, synthetic imaging or, you know, trying to have uh, multivariate contrasts that are sort of assembled in a, in a way that, you know, is digestible to a radiologist immediately or, or some machine learning algorithm that sort of makes sense of it in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that seems like the way MRR is going. Yes. But there is a kind of always debate about how much structure MRO metrics can be interpreted in relation to explicit biology. (laughs) My position is still fluctuating because some people tell me like you, just should just more about strong interpretation of myelin acts on others, but as a group of people, you shouldn't do that. That's dangerous. And so you think it, they think it's dangerous because you just don't know. It's sort of an inverse problem. You don't know all the biological underpinnings. Right, but I have a kind of mixed feeling. Then I think the true answer is kind of always in between. Because certainly there's no some information in there. There are some information there. But maybe we shouldn't just use very strong uh, language to interpret as a biological mechanism, because there is always kind of inference uh, from MR level to microstructure level. That is kind of always complicated. Then uh, at this point, we can just only adjust it at the level of the strength of the language. So maybe we can potentially interpret, but we should have a reservation. Yeah, and I think that you know at some point it becomes complementary because even with uh, you know if you take histological slides and there might be things that you don't necessarily see with you know the optical information that that you could see with MRI that that uh, uh, right I mean I think that but I I do I do understand their caution and but at the same time 
uh, and it's tricky, actually. I mean, there's there's only a handful of, I mean, it's a really hard thing to do. I mean, I've known of a few groups who are trying to do, and this is more along the lines of interpreting diffusion in general. Um, and that's like, you know, taking histology and aligning it perfectly with, with diffusion imaging and then understanding exactly, you know, if you vary some parameters, what what is the underlying mechanism? That's one avenue for making progress as far as that's right. Concerned. Yeah, it is yeah. complicated because when people are coming up to understand what's the relationship between spike and ball signals, then there seem longer arguments. <laughs> so that can be complicated. That can yeah. be complicated too. I mean, so right. It, Exactly. I mean, sure, there's a relationship, but right. I mean, it's, it gets extremely complicated depending on, and, and plus, right, there's a lot we don't understand about gold, um, whether it's how much is inhibitory or excitatory activity or, you know, all kinds of things like that. You know, of course, it varies with vasculature. And I'm sh- but, but I think there's a lot to be got, gained from, I like the idea of of uh, you know, trying to right combine you know right like you said MT contrast with with uh, diffusion with myelography to try to to pull out you know detailed structure. Um, there's all kinds of uh, cytoarchitecture structure that vary across these parameters, and of course susceptibility contrast is is another one. But so I'm I'm actually kind of curious. I've noticed in some of your in some of your other papers more recently that you know, you're you're looking at uh, potential perturbations of of either uh, you know white matter pathways. I mean, what, your most recent paper is the effect of binocular blindness on critical period of white matter pathway. Uh, you know, that's a single case study, but but you're also I noticed that you're looking at potentially looking at changes with with development or with pathology. Do you want to talk at all, speak at all to that? And and also I've seen in other papers, not necessarily yours, but that suggests that with, you know, for instance, with experience, with learning. Yes. So I think it is nowadays accepted that fine matter can be more plastic than initially thought. Then I think that level of understanding, there is a consensus as far as I believe. Since there's lots of evidence of fine matter plasticity, pathological changes of the fine matter, maybe learning effects, and there are kind of cellular background based on oligodendrocyte or glial factor. So there are certain changes, but of course there are things I don't fully understand. The, there is a reason, because in the case of eye disorder, sometimes it's relatively clear, because we know which cell layer is damaged in the eye, then I know which pathway I should look at. But general learning stuff is sometimes more difficult to interpret, because one paper only provides one type of training, then one type of the effect. In particular, a uh, timeline of the experiment. Then it seems practically impossible to just train every combination of the different tasks, then different period. So how many training was performed and when people scan. So then it seems a lack of theory, how long training is required to cause certain fine matter change or what type of training is effective for fine matter change, or which system is more plastic than others. It is very hard to establish in that direction because maybe motor system people can easily get because motor system should be plastic because when we are just practicing, we just get better easily. But maybe some system can be potentially less plastic, but we still don't know. And that's interesting. I mean, so so you don't think there's a general principle of you know, let's say the more, the more you repetitively, there were probably some interaction of, you know, repetition and intensity uh, and, and, and the whole idea of becoming more myelinated is it becomes, as you say, more efficient potentially. And, and the myelination does two things. One, it keeps it stable, but also increases the, maybe, maybe the velocity of transmission. Or, um, and that's useful, right? Um, uh, yeah, like for instance, um, yeah, like there's been studies of, you know, motor cortex, the myelin increasing or decreasing with, with learning a skill or things like that, which is fascinating uh, that it does that a little bit. You'd think, you know, one would think that that uh, it's hard to know the benefits of that uh, and, um, you know, how much of a benefit you would get from that little difference little addition uh but as people know i mean like the frontal cortex is less myelinated because it's 
probably very changeable. And so you want to keep it malleable in that regard. Um, very, you know, in terms of how it reconfigures itself. Um, it's interesting. Uh, studying myelination and how it changes could reveal some really interesting principles, how the brain adapts. Yeah, well. it is interesting, but think about Ultima's just myelination is also a complicated factor. Maybe people have opinion because more myelinated is not always better. <laughs> we have to coordinate. <laughs> Because everything gets faster, then it doesn't make sense. So. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I think there's yeah. Um, so I think uh, so. Also uh, regarding clinical applications, but like with fMRI, you know, we're 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 still waiting for uh, a really really solid clinical application. Aside from I, I know that I know that track tracing. I know Susumamori, for instance, has pushed. You know, looking at uh, you know for pre-surgical mapping. You know, looking at fiber tracks as they go around tumors, and so you, if you want to you know, make sure you don't cut these valuable fiber tracks, you you map that. Are there any other uh, like obvious clinical applications that that you see, or or even things that are on the horizon that might be biomarkers for 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 track tracing? Well, potentially people can use it for selecting targeting site or the stimulation because they're kind of established protocol for phonic stimulation because I think Dr. Rosano just gave us a trilector lecture about this. Maybe potentially uh, fine matter tract uh, imaging can be useful for that purposes, but that's not really my field. That seems promising. But in our field, I'm just a vision person. I'm always thinking about how much just tractography or diffusion image can be useful. Then it's not potentially very useful diagnostic purposes because I think most intuitive is just scanning eyes using OCT. So you can directly see the eyes. But I think that diffusion imaging can be potentially useful to think about how much impact of the eye disorder is just profound in the later stage of the visual processing. Then that can be useful to think about intervention because if the intervention of the retinal ganglion cell itself is sufficient, I think it's fine. But if there's an impact for the connection between brain area to area to even to the cortex, maybe intervention to the cortex or other strategy can be potentially powerful. But my idea is still ambiguous. But I think think about some clinical kind of strategy or potential application. Actually, for matter is potentially matters. Because where you want to intervene and what's happening and what's the effective strategy for particular individuals. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think, and so each, so what's, what's nice about white matter, I mean, fiber tracking is that it does seem to, I mean, it's every individual has their very unique sort of pattern of, it's more obvious than just looking at the cortex um, and the folds. I mean, the, the white matter tracks are, are variable and, yeah, just even trying to characterize that is is a is a task. If you're averaging a number of subjects together, how do you average white matter tracks? How do you align them? How do you how do you characterize differences of this very complex geometric shape? Well, we usually just identify tract uh, white matter tract using tractography. We often have a very explicit hypothesis on which tract are using uh, for analysis say optic radiation for retinal disorder patients. Then in that case, we are just placing some region of interest for the lateral genital nucleus or primary visual cortex based on structural imaging or other factor. Then we are trying to optimize tractography in order to get reasonable estimate of optic radiation from everybody. Then typically we use a pipeline called AFQ, which is developed by Jason Yetman currently at Stanford. So which is some taking a centroid of the identified tract, then getting some weighted average of diffusion indices, say FA, maybe ODI or a couple of others. Because the idea is we want to avoid to include lots of voxel which interface with other structures. So basically, we are just getting some core of the particular track, then making some weighted sum in individual points along the track. Then weight is defined based on the distance from the tract core. Then in that way, we can just make a profile in individual subject. Then we repeat the same procedure for everybody. 
uh, to get the control distribution, then comparison with control distribution, one patient, so some, something like that. So you're mostly looking at that as opposed to, right, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Some people might think, okay, that, that's a factor, but also it seems that, you know, maybe the, the geometry, the length of the track, or, you know, how tortuous it might be, or could be somehow a signature, signature of something as well. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's actually, and also I thought that maybe, you know, this, this, you know, the large problem of, you know, when you have multiple subjects for fMRI, you know, we try to register the cortex and parcelate it, but it seems that potentially if you have tractography information that could help constrain and uh, further or maybe better register the data, maybe, I mean, it's features that you could line, align to help parcelate as well. So what? So as far as clinically, then you're trying to look at okay, definitely for neuromodulation, it's nice to, and I know that Holly Lisenby here at the NIH does this where, you know, with TMS you can't go deeply in the brain, so you try to get tracks that project to the deep part of the brain, and you sort of stimulate those. That seems like that works sometimes, and I don't know if uh, that's what you were you were mentioning might be going on as far as that's concerned. So that could be useful. So. Potentially, if I haven't tested just by myself, but there are relatively recent paper published in brain structure and function just stimulating motor cortex with TMS, then try to see some uh, modulation of the TMS evoke potential on the finger to see some plasticity effect. Maybe that type of experiment can be possible. Oh, cool. Yes. Yeah, but even maybe TMS, I think it's not possible to stimulate everywhere. And then there's no general principle. Then I sometimes also get the question from people, do you think you can stimulate five matter tract using TMS? So my answer is, I don't know. <laughs> because there's a complex relationship between fiber orientation, then I think the direction of the field generated by TMS, so how it's effective, can you just directly stimulate five matter tract? So, my answer is just, I don't know. So that's maybe complicated. If we can do that, impactful, but I honestly don't understand. So. And actually just, uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. So how do you actually optimally stimulate something like that, that has a certain orientation and you're just getting a, a projection? Yeah. Well, if you, so is there, are there thoughts on, on how much uh, white matter uh, track activity contributes to like the MEG signal. Um, like in, you know, if you flip it around, uh, does it, I mean, and so, you know, I've, in my distant past, I've been, you know, looking at trying to think about ways of doing neural current imaging with MRI. And it seems that white matter tracks could be good candidates if you could modulate the activity. Uh, it's, you know, these thick bundles that might have, you know, behave as big cables that have current passing through them. Um, question is whether the current's all going one direction or it's going multiple directions or, or not. But um, I just never occurred to my, to, to think about, I mean, I'm sure people use white matter tracks when they're trying to model MEG signals as, as well. So yeah, interesting, interesting. So, okay. So, um, but it's, so, okay, that's one clinical application uh, and, and certainly looking at um, plasticity, uh, but, and or pre-surgical mapping as well, but but is there any, you know, people are always trying to find biomarkers of psychiatric disorders with fMRI. And I think we'll, there's a lot of hints or a lot of suggestions that it might work. It seems that if you can do white matter track, track tracing, especially getting this deep thalamic or deep cortical uh, or deep subcortical nuclei, there might be a lot of interesting biomarker signatures, uh, just looking at the white matter track and the structure. I don't know, what would be your thoughts on that as far as psychiatric disorders, anxiety, so. Yes, but maybe some subcortical white matter just image can be potential for other neurological disorder in which some neural circuitry just relatively understood. So it was some just all the disorder, people already kind of have lots of finding like basal ganglia involved or uh, some specific kind of subcortical structure is involved. And in those cases, it's reasonable to test the hypothesis on the fine matter yeah. in the subcortex and this is severity. 
Yes. But psychic disorder, disorder is very difficult object. So yeah. it's absolutely difficult. Yeah. And I doubt there'll be any simple solution. I mean, it's very complicated. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, I, and I think that's part of the reason why we have such a hard time. First, we have a hard time characterizing people in a homogeneous way to compare. And then, and then you know, psychiatry could be, right, there could be many reasons to explain many disorders. And it's probably not one circuit. Um, that's the hope, but it's probably not that simple. But that's the fun. That's the interesting part to try to understand this, because I think we will someday. All right, let's just start looking towards the future. So what do you think are the, the areas where uh, track tracing will improve? Will it be, you know, how will it improve with acquisition? How will the processing improve? How might the applications improve? How, what insight might it add to neuroscience? So where, where do you think it's going? Well, I think it needs improvement at all stages. <laughs> I think the improvement at any stage is helpful from acquisition, uh, maybe knowledge about neural anatomy and analysis pipeline. But I think it requires lots of some knowledge uh, to do to some extent. But I think most lacking in, in the field in some part is a kind of understanding on what is the appropriate level of the question we can ask for diffusion imaging, then that's actually not very easy task to do because the same for fMRI, same for MEG, because in order to rightly use it and improve it, we need to just again sense about what is appropriate question. Then that requires level because sometimes diffusion imaging can be incapable if people have the research question, which doesn't really fit well with what diffusion MRI can do. Then improving diffusion imaging in that direction is kind of always not very easy task. But of course, there are kind of need of a technical development, but to some extent, we should share the feeling like what is an appropriate level of the question. That I mean some research question with appropriate level of the coarseness. Then, which is not very easy task, but over the last 10 years, I just tried to learning. So what is the appropriate level of the course question we can ask, then that question is still useful. Then I think, then I think it's become more easier to talk about some strategy to, to improve diffusion imaging and the tractography because here's a goal. Then here's the direction we are heading. But sometimes we are just still be confusing about what we can do or what we couldn't do. Then that type of discussion should be more polished. Yes, I completely agree. It's 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 very easy just to speculate wildly, but um, but I, I totally agree that that the real progress is made when you have a very very focused question, and you 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 really deeply go into specific advances towards a, a purpose uh, in the applications. But so just to clarify one more thing, so so a lot of people feel oh well fractional anisotropy maps are good enough as opposed to tractography maps. So what, you know, what's really, if somebody were to say that to you, what would you say? Um, well, my answer is not always very simplistic, but I will say that's up to research question. <laughs> yes, the Fusion tensor model is not very best model for tractography purposes if you have a number of the direction sufficient for complex model, because it's kind of overly simplistic for fiber orientation model. But FA is kind of still useful to identify some microstructure and difference between patient and control distribution. It's very sensitive. It's highly useful. Then, of course, that is with the cost of ambiguity or the interpretation. But if the goal is just distinguishing one population with others or just distinguish one person from control distribution, I think FA is kind of still valid metric to use. But if you are just pushing some interpretation in relation to the microstructure, FA is just inherently uh, ambiguous because it picks so many different information. However, of course, there's kind of long debate like how much complex diffusion MRI model can be really specific. It is a very difficult problem to just resolve. So then my position is kind of still fluctuating. So maybe my short answer is, if you have sufficient amount of the data, maybe it's not the best model for tractography, but we can just still use it uh, if we are just cautious not to over-interpret it. So. That's a very wise answer. 
that's uh, yeah, and that's very clarifying because I do feel a lot of people, you know, there's there's many parameters that determine what's better than the other. And like you were saying, and one thing that you 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 mentioned, which is really insightful, and I think people should understand, it's right. If it's if it's micro structure that you really can't even resolve with tractography, uh, you know, fractional isotropy, you know, gets at that information pretty nicely. Um, but if it's sort of a structure in which, uh, you know, it's large enough and homogeneous enough that you can do tractography, that could be very useful for many things as far as that's concerned. So, so right, there's this continuum. Uh, interesting. I mean, is there, so I mean, you're certainly doing a lot of other research. And I wanted to, I didn't just, just wanted to talk about the tractography thing because you're doing so much more. Is there any research that you're working on right now that you're particularly excited about? Uh, we are trying to do structural imaging in the subcortex. So hopefully we can just publish this soon, but we have one paper on the lateral genicular nucleus, then looking at kind of structure and FMI on there. Then we are also published uh, one paper on the fMRI on clinical patient on retinal disorder called macular degeneration. So we just try to look at some bold response in the primary visual cortex. Uh, other just sensory modality like tactile to auditory in those population. So, oh, so there are some fMRI. So there are some other, other different type of kind of structural imaging. Then we're also trying to just uh, compare some diffusion imaging data from different animal to better understand some interspecies differences. And the other thing I have already finished and published is a collaboration with Dr. Kao Thiels. So oh, we really? yes. Yes, look at some polarized light imaging data together to look at connection between those and ventral visual cortex, connection between ceramic nuclei to the cortex uh, to better understand organization of white matter, which is not diffusion, but very much a similar topic. Yes, yes. And that's, you know, that makes beautiful images. Of course, it's invasive, but it's, and once again, there's so much information in terms of how it agrees or disagrees or uh, what sort of, how it's complementary in many ways too. So that's, yeah, I remember you were, you were collaborating a lot with Dr. Zillis on, on that. That'll be one of the first papers that I know of actually doing these sort of direct comparisons. So that's great. I mean, I really love how you're embracing the novel imaging, the novel technology, and, uh, and, these, and, and sort of looking at the questions that lend it themselves most to this. And it's, there's so much information to be had. So it's wonderful work that you're doing. Um, I just want to finish then with, um, uh, you know, you're a young scientist. You're, I, you're still very young. I mean, really, you're, you've just, you did your finish your postdoc in 2015 uh, and you're doing such amazing. Uh, you're really focused. You're really energetic. You're really putting yourself out there. Um, is there any advice uh, that you want to give people who are a little bit less old, a little bit younger than you? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, Everybody have biases before people can just only come up with idea about their own success and the failure. So maybe my answer is very much bias. So, so there's strong reservation, but uh, my, my suggestion is just don't worry to change environmental research topic because some people really want to stick on the one topic all the time. Then people can be more sophisticated. But for a long time, I think there's a certain risk to stay on the one topic and one method. Then if we are just junior, especially from transition the PhD to postdoc, then my recommendation is just try to seek a different opportunity in order to be really unique. Then that was my decision during PhD, because I was in the psychophysics. Then I made a transition to diffusion imaging, which has a huge jump. Then, which has a risk factor because I had a kind of hard time to publish one paper. It takes a lot of time. Then I just arrived at the Stanford. I even don't know what the B values, and I have no idea what <laughs> other people are talking about. <laughs> but yeah. after transition, then people can just get more unique insight other people couldn't get because it's very difficult to be an expert on that one field because there's always smarter people in the same field already existing in sophisticated science, but if there's a kind of jump across the different field, it's become more easy to become an expert on the one topic. Then you can think of the research question, which I, other people couldn't easily come up with. That makes our life easier than science more interesting. So that can be my advice, but which has, of course, certain biases. <laughs> 
So what would be a bias with that? I mean, it seems like generally good advice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I do. I mean, you're right. I mean, there are always exceptions. People who focus on one thing and become successful. But I do think, I think you're right, especially in, in this field that's so mm-hmm. multidisciplinary. There's such a wide range of questions that you can ask in so many different areas with these tools. Um, yeah, you, you, I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, and I, you know, I even have to probably do that more. I've, I've been an fMRI sort of person. Um, and I, it would be great to try to get out of that trench and sort of the real interesting work is done by people who cross uh, these disciplines. And which I think your work is truly uh hit a certain niche that is useful. And I, and I think it's giving new information as far as both towards neuroscience and potentially clinically. So keep it up. Yeah, but, thank uh, you very much. And con- congratulations again. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's well-deserved. And, and, uh, and thanks, for, thanks for coming on the podcast. Neurosalience is brought to you by Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This episode is produced by Ömer Faruk Gülban and Alfie Wern.